Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Global civilization is clearly on the edge of failure. What are you really afraid of? Hast thou eaten of the fruit of the tree whereof I told thee thou shouldst not eat? The moral to be drawn from this nightmare situation is a simple one. You simply have to turn your back on a culture that has gone sterile and dead and get with the program of a living world and a re-empowerment of the imagination. More than machinery, we need humanity. Fundamental changes in society are sometimes labeled impractical. Our birth, our death, our being in the moment, these are mysteries. They are doorways opening on to unimaginable vistas of self-exploration. The contemplation of death and the acceptance of death is very highly generative of creative life. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. The society is trying to cure itself by an archaic revival. What account would we give of our stewardship of the planet Earth? The world is not an unsolved problem for scientists or sociologists. The world is a living mystery. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. Don't give yourselves to brutes, men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel. Don't let it happen. It depends on you. Welcome to Death in the Garden. This podcast seeks to explore the mythologies of our time in an era of converging crises. The interviews you will hear on this podcast are from our upcoming film. We are questioning the cultural assumptions about who we are, where we came from, and where we are going. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Death in the Garden. Before we get to the podcast, we've got a few fun announcements one, which we should have announced earlier, is we are going to be speaking at the Crestone Energy Fair this upcoming weekend in Crestone, Colorado. Yeah, it's going to be on Saturday, I think, at around 4 o'clock in Crestone, and it's going to be really fun. It'll be really cool. It's yeah. our first time doing public speaking, so who knows how it's going to go, but... <laughs> yeah, our good friend and former podcast guest, Anya Kotz, convinced us to do it. She lives there, and I think she's been helping organize the event and so it's a good time for us to talk about um the project and the experience of making it the things we're covering in the film and i guess maybe some of the conclusions and uh for lack of a better word solutions or applicable action taking that can happen with what we've learned in mind so that's what what we will be speaking on if anybody is in colorado or in the area or needs a fun last minute trip to watch two people ramble embarrassingly through <laughs> a speech at the Crestone Ener Energy Fair. It'll be on September 16th in Crestone, Colorado. So see you there if you are gonna make it. Another thing we'd really love to announce is that we figured out another way that people can support us if they want to, which is we started a print shop and it's select stills that are just really beautiful from the film that you can buy. The lowest priced one we have right now is $30, but you can also, if you want to buy something that's a little bit more permanent, a little bit more fancy, you can buy framed prints, you can buy metal prints, but it's really, really nice. And we're excited to see how it goes. It's still, we did a test run. We're still waiting to get the prints delivered to us to see how everything is working. But if you would like to buy a print, you can get 10% off for the rest of the month 
using the code PRINTSHOP. And that's going to be uh, linked in the show notes, but it's on our website, deathinthegarden.org. You'll see shop in the corner, uh, the upper right-hand corner. And then that's where you can go take a look at some really beautiful shots that Jake has captured. Yeah, it's very exciting to have a print shop because as doing more video and film work, you don't always walk away with something physical and tangible, such as a photograph to share or to print. Um, and the film has been in production for a few years, so it feels like sometimes we've been putting so much work and can't really show people anything. And so it's really exciting to find stills from the film to be able to share with you guys. And as a note, we'll be kind of cycling through images. So right now, what do we have, 15 up? I think we have 12. 12 up, and it, it probably in a few months, we'll take those down or some of them down and put up new ones and new fresh ones as we continue filming or, or find new images from the film we like. So please check those out. It's a great way of supporting us. It, it feels good for me to be able to share, I guess, artwork with the world. Uh, because film is a, a it's a it's a medium that's hard to make something physically tangible, especially in the era of, you know, we don't have Blu-ray and DVDs anymore. It's all streamed, so it's a fun way of me sharing some of the stuff I've created. Um, that's one way of supporting us now. Again, if you want to support us but you can't do it financially, leaving a comment or a good review on either iTunes or Spotify is a huge way you can help us. That goes a very long way. And you can also become a Patreon for um, as low as, what, $5 a month? You can go at $3 a month. $3 a month. That's a great way of supporting us as well. But there's many ways of supporting this podcast. If you like it, please spread the word. And we hope you enjoy this episode with Chris Smage. So we're really excited to share this podcast with you. We just did an interview last week with Chris Smage. He recently wrote a book called Saying No to a Farm-Free Future, which is in essence a response to the book Regenesis by George Mombio, which you may have read the response that I did or listened to the podcast that I did about that. Um, and so we just spent a lot of time talking about that, talking about his take on eco-modernism, his take on where we actually need to be going as a society to create a sustainable future. And we talked so much about agrarian localism and the problems of eco-modernism and how there's this sort of divergent, these two divergent paths that are forming in modern times, it seems. And one is moving towards this sort of technotopian future that may or may not come into fruition just due to the fact that, you know, fossil energy is precarious and Trans translating a high energy lifestyle into renewable energies is also a precarious pr proposal. And then versus this other idea of localizing, having a context-based ba context economic and food system. And so we just discussed that at length and it was a really, really great conversation. He's also written a book called Small Farm Future, which some of you may have read. And we just felt that he had a really resonant message with us. He talks. We talked a lot about the problems of quantification and reductionism. We talked about the ways that we need to sort of be interacting with the world as a keystone species and how important that is for us to start really considering ourselves as protagonists within ecology. Yeah, it's a it's a really fun book that he's written and it's funny too. And I think it's great and very timely for this current moment in agriculture and the conversation around environmentalism and agriculture. So I hope you all read it or listen to the audiobook, which I know is out as well. Please enjoy this conversation and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. 
thank you so much for having this conversation with us. We're really excited to talk about your book, Saying No to a Farm-Free Future, and also your other book, uh, um, A Small Farm Future. There's so many important ideas that you touch on, and I, I feel... I feel a lot of resonance to the way that you see the world and more so than most people that we've come across. And I'm very curious to know, you know, like I know your background is in sociology and anthropology and that you've been farming for around 20 years. Um, but I would just be really curious to know, you know, like what led you to start seeing the world the way that you do? Because it's interesting that we could kind of come to very similar conclusions about the world, but have such really very disparate backgrounds. And so if you could maybe just start off by talking about your background, let us know, like, how did you get to where you are now seeing the world the way that you do? Right. <laughs> interesting question. And, and yeah, thanks very much for having me um, doing this uh, interview with me. Um, yeah, it's hard to sort of uh, um, exactly put my finger on it. But yeah, as you said, I, my original background was in anthropology. I studied at university and then I taught sociology for a number of years. Um, I, I, I was I kind of was interested as um, as an undergrad and then a, a grad student in peasant farming. Um, but from a very sort of intellectual, I didn't actually know anything about farming at that stage or how to grow crops. It was very much a kind of um, peasant worldview, you know, in terms of sort of interaction with the wider capitalist system kind of stuff. Um, and I was taught mostly by Marxist thinkers, but also by Paul Richards, um, who wrote a really interesting book, Indigenous Agricultural Revolution, where he, it was essentially a critique of green revolution thinking based on his research in West Africa. And his argument very much was that um, local farmers have the answers. Basically, if we if we trust them, you know, it's a very much a kind of bottom up sort of thing. And I guess maybe that somehow planted a seed in my mind some years to um, to emerge. But yeah, you know, I, I, I taught sociology doing not really farm or environmentally related things and then it was kind of in the late 90s when people, you know, the whole narrative around climate change and the, the, the dangers of climate change and energy futures and so on was getting going. And, you know, it's it seems to me that, that, you know, the food system was a really key point um, in that. And I guess I was a little bit disillusioned with uh, academic life. So, uh, yeah, my wife and I, we just took this crazy punt and got some land here in um southwest england and um basically developed a, a small farm so um yeah that's what i've been doing for 20 odd years and and you know it's i suppose trying to make a small farm work commercially has been an eye-opener and and kind of has drawn me a little bit back into the sociology of it like you know why is it so difficult to to farm locally in a in a good way and um yeah these days are to my to my sort of shame i sp probably spend more time in the study than out on the farm but uh you know uh, i guess you do different things at different stages in life so um yeah it's sort of drawn me back into the social science um and 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 sort of trying to figure out um you know how we get out of the poly crisis and and find another way um you know other routes into the future really yeah wonderful wonderful it's i mean i think that there's so much value in what you're doing and the the books that you're writing and the things that you're that you're producing because well thank you yeah of course i 
what we find when we think about why we're compelled to do this project is that it's it's almost like there's this direction that civilization is going and it's like there needs to be more voices sort of hearkening a resistance of some kind and obviously you know what i've learned over the past few years is that people have been resisting against this sort of direction for hundreds of years or if not thousands of years people have been questioning and trying to trying to articulate why we don't want to go towards this eco-modernist future. And of course, it wasn't called that, you know, 100 years ago, but that's sort of what we've come to now. Um, And so your book, Saying No to a Farm-Free Future, is really a a response or a foil to uh, George Monbiot's book, Regenesis, which is definitely the the eco-modernist philosophy of like what we, how we need to transform the food system. We need to reboot the food system to, in order for us to be able to continue living on the planet. And we, I, I do, it's interesting that we both felt very compelled to write responses to this book. Um, mm. It c- caused a very visceral reaction in me when I read it, and I, I just felt like I needed to get those words on the paper. But I'd love to know if you could maybe explain why, why did you feel compelled to write this book? Why did you just feel like you had to respond in, in a way that you could really break down your ideas and explain why the direction that George Monbiot is trying to take us with a book like this is wrong and it's not helpful? Right. Well, ironically, I, I first um, really engaged directly with George uh, about eight years ago when we were both critics of eco-modernism. <laughs> I wrote, um, you know, the eco, uh, the, the, there was the eco-modernist manifesto that was published in 2015. Um, and I wrote a, um, I wrote a critique of it and George read it and um, engaged with it and uh, sort of amplified it, you know, to my, um, you know, I'm eternally grateful to him actually that he gave a bit of a boost to my writing then and mentioned it in a article in the Guardian um, that was critiquing um, eco-modernism and and by the way just to go back to something you said I think you're absolutely right to connect eco-modernism you know it's presented as this very new novel way of thinking but I think you're absolutely right to connect it to a much longer history which is essentially a history of enclosure you know it's it's a a a kind of ideology of agricultural improvement in inverted commas you know which is always presented as you know this is best for poor people this is best for nature this is best for da 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 da, you know but it's actually about um you know it's a kind of high-tech top-down um um, uh, technological um, kind of capital uh, accumulating approach, uh, you know, which in my opinion is almost always problematic. So, uh, so yeah, you know, in a way, that's um, the the reason for writing the book is that Monbiot is one of the few figures. I mean, I don't know if, how well known he is in a U.S. context. I mean, in in the U.K. He's just about the only journalist with a, a kind of mainstream platform who historically has been a really powerful and eloquent voice for a kind of radical green progressive kind of uh, uh, agenda uh, you know an anti-capitalist pro-poor pro-dispossessed you know making all the sort of connections we know about the food system and the way that it impoverishes people and impoverishes um, ecosystems 
And so, yeah, it's been quite a shock to see this uh, transition in his writing. I mean, obviously, part of the book is about the need to, for farming not to be so impactful upon um, nature. And, you know, perhaps we'll come on to that. But yeah, you know, he's gradually drifted into this eco-modernist space. And I, yeah, so I kind of felt the need to, uh, I, I wrote a, a brief re review of his book and had a somewhat sharp exchange with him on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yes, it, it all started with a with an angry tweet. How many you know? How many books get started in that way? But um, yeah, you know, I said I said I'd write. You know, I, I said okay, well I'll write a blog post or something. Um, you know, just laying out why I think you know he's getting this wrong. And uh, yeah, it got picked up by my publisher, and they were sort of like, oh well, you know, maybe you could turn that into a short book, and uh, and and that's what's happened. But. But yeah, you know, Monbio, you know, he's written a lot on sort of global economic stuff, a lot on climate change. He hasn't written so much on the food system in recent years. And I mean, I think that's a big problem with the book is that he, he didn't really talk to the alternative food movement or, you know, to, to the food sovereignty movement. And, you know, and a lot of a lot of former colleagues got quite energized about it because, yeah, you know, he really misses, um, you know, he, he really misses a, a lot of tricks really in terms of, you know, his critique of the existing food system is, as, as you pointed out in, in your review, is is good. But then, you know, he doesn't really follow through on the political implications of that and sort of goes for this, you know, essentially um, sort of technological corporate solutions that I think are, are very problematic. And it, and it matters, I think, because of who he is, you know, if he was, if he was, you know, some corporate voice, you know, you'd say, yeah, whatever, you know, uh, same old, same old. But because of who he is, I think, you know, he can pull a lot of people of goodwill who, you know, who care about these issues, but maybe, you know, haven't, don't necessarily know a lot about the food system kind of pulls them in his wake into this problematic corporate friendly um, kind of narrative. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe you could for our listeners as well who haven't read the book yet and don't have as kind of much knowledge on a lot of these details as possible. What is eco-modernism? How do you describe it? What is it a reaction to and what is it trying to accomplish? Right. Well, I mean, you know, it's not necessarily, um, uh, you know, it's a broad tendency, I suppose, rather than a specific doctrine. But I mean, I tend to think of it as probably having four key elements. One of them is that it's very pro-urban. I mean, it, you know, the larger narrative, I suppose, is that all of the trends in modern society that, that you know, that demonstrably are leading us into problems are you know we need to sort of um go with them you know but make them less ecologically impactful so one of them is is urbanism you know as everyone has widely said you know that we're, we now are a predominantly urban planet and so sort of eco-modernism goes with that and sort of says okay so you know we need you know humans are going to be living in cities but we need to make city living you know, less impactful um you know on on the on the wider world on on particularly on 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 nature and wildlife so then because essentially the urbanism leads to um a, a focus on energy you know urban living is high energy living basically um so the energy has to be clean uh, I mean, historically, eco-modernism has been very strongly associated with nuclear advocacy, um, but, you know, it could also be other other forms of, of so-called clean energy, low-carbon energy. But, you know, it's it's basically committed to a high energy 
and it's uh, it's committed to biotech. You know, the the original arguments were kind of around GM, but now we've sort of moved into you know things like precision fermentation, uh, so-called precision fermentation, and the kind of technologies that uh, Monbiot talks about. And then the final strand is is about nature and protecting wildlife. You know, so all of the debates about so-called land sparing, land sharing. But you know, the idea, part of the idea of the urbanism is you know get people. Um, you know, the idea is that people are bad news for nature. Get people uh, out of the countryside into the cities and and sort of leave leave the world the wild places alone for the wild things is is basically the the ethos and and i think you know monby you know one of the interesting things is a lot of people who were more traditional sort of greens have have made these recantations you know people like stuart brand or mark linus you know sort of said oh you know I was wrong, and now I'm embracing this this sort of high tech eco modernist vision. Monbiot hasn't done that, um, but um, you know I think all those all of those four strands that I mentioned are very prominent in his recent writing in a way that they weren't in his earlier writing. So there's a kind of stealthy transformation in in his position, I would say. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right with that um, because you know someone like Michael Schellenberger, for example, you know has has really renounced the sort of um, you know to use Charles Mann's words, the wizard wizards and prophets. Like Michael Schellenberger has really renounced his affiliation with the prophets, and and it you know they they sort of po- frame it in this way of like. It's almost it's almost this this transition between the medieval way of thinking and enlightenment way of thinking is they're they're kind of like eschewing the romantic ideas that they had about nature and they're fully embracing rationalism finally is sort of the way that it's presented too and I, I find it interesting too that you know as far as like heterodox sort of thinking about the world in like heterodox circles that worldview is so embraced but the idea of of returning to a more agrarian simple low energy way of life is completely no, there's there's no airtime given to it it's it's seen as nonsensical it's seen as anti-progressive and that's part of the problem um and you highlight that really really well in your book in, in both of your books that this notion of progress is really hindering our ability to deal with these problems in a practical, effective, and even like just realistic way. So could you maybe describe that pr- process about how, you know, what you're advocating for, which is agrarian localism, is not seen as serious because it's not, it's not on this linear progress sort of arc? Yeah, absolutely. And, and and again, I think you're right to, to, to highlight that, you know, increasingly, I think of this as, if anything, the big, you know, the, the, the biggest stumbling block we have to addressing our, our problems are kind of cultural or even spiritual ones. And, and, and this sort of notion of progress towards a technological future and leaving that kind of life in the past was awful. And, uh, you, you know, um, we're, we're on this kind of onward and upward trajectory to to a better and better life is you know is really problematic i'm you know i'm not saying that there's there's no grains of truth in it um, but i think somewhat less fewer grains of truth than um, you know than the sort of mainstream narrative would hold so yeah that is a big problem and and i think i mean it's kind of interesting in the like you know your really interesting review of the book where you know monbio claims to be very very quantitative about everything but you see 
where the quantification stops and the insults um you know <laughs> come in is that's often the point of weakness in an argument you know and and you know he talks about um bucolic um fantasies um you know an interview he did recently he talked about neo-peasant bullshit you know and that you know in my book i i, I do i do some project i do a little bit of quantitative projections of well you know could we feed um you know here in the uk could we feed which you know which is a densely populated country you know could we feed ourselves using low impact low energy farming and you'd expect you know that that would be an obvious thing for him to do you know if if he did that and, and came to the conclusion well no we can't really do that then that kind of opens up well you know are there do we do we need to embrace technological um you know um sort of high tech news solutions but you know i show i think in my book that actually it's not that difficult to feed ourselves um using basically organic mixed farming and and, and sort of low impact low low energy techniques and so that's you know in a sense that's the key argument like pretty much every part of the world prior to modern industrialism and and you know the, the sort of fossil fueled modernity that that we now have figured out a you know usually a farming system that was kind of ecologically keyed to place and was you know basically um more or less renewable sustainable and my argument is basically we should be inspired by those local agricultures the you know the argument is not that everything about those past societies was wonderful and we need to kind of you know exactly replicate everything they did the argument is basically let's be you know let's look at how people in the past who were facing um, the issues that i think we're facing now which is a lower energy future how did they go about um providing a um, you know material well-being for themselves and not replicating exactly but you know starting from that point of inspiration and and but you know also sort of culturally getting over ourselves a little bit you know and assuming that um you know i mean you mentioned the sort of enlightenment rationalism and so on i mean you talk about that nicely in your review i mean i talk about it a bit in my book as well that i think um you know we the, the the whole sort of concept of romanticism you know we need to take it a bit more seriously you know ro romanticism is not creating some kind of false image of past societies of how wonderful they were you know romanticism was a movement that arose as a as a kind of critique of modernity and sort of said look what we're losing you know look what we're doing here you know is this the best the, the the best way we can you know move society i'm, I'm sort of hesitating because we, we we tend to get drawn into all this you know progress move society forwards move on you know we have all these kind of spatial metaphors that's really hard to kind of think your way out of but i think you know it's really fascinating i've done a bit of writing about i mean, I mean i'm far from an expert but you know a bit of writing about pre-modern philosophies and yeah you know book like Bakhtin's Rabelais and his world I found absolutely fascinating in terms of medieval cosmologies which were not based on a kind of progress towards things getting better and better but but actually kind of um you know a much more um sort of living in the present kind of modality of of you know of sort of value judgment so you know part, partly it's about well how do we farm in a in a low energy renewable way but also you know i 
my view is that we we really do need to kind of reinvent our culture from from the grounds up and and again you know not just to kind of grab some in you know sort of some sort of bolt on a kind of um, modern culture on the basis of pre-modern ones but to sort of yeah you know be inspired by you know what are the you know what are the big problems you know what are the, what what you know what are the cultural issues we face what you know what does it mean to be human and not to just assume that you know it's a kind of technological solution towards a kind of um you know ultimately quite a sort of technologized you know sort of longevity or um you know having more material possessions or more you know these things don't actually matter to most people that much at the end of the day you know so yeah, we need. There's a lot of rethinking we need to do, and you know, I think we need to be, uh, yeah, as I say, get over ourselves, be inspired by people in the past. You know, just the, the sort of notion that that their answers have no relevance to us today is is quite a bizarre notion, really. So yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I, this is something that you really highlight in the book, which was really funny, by the way. I found myself laughing at a lot of just moments because, you know, <laughs> there's a few great moments where you were just like, or you could use sunlight. You know, you come to these really just like logical, you know, <laughs> but I, he, you know, George Mambio is emphatically that farming is the problem. Any type of farming, farming is a problem. Farming is antithetical to mm -hmm. wildlife. It's antithetical to just the environment in general. And what you are doing in the book and what we've tried so hard to articulate, it's it's the underlying socio-political and economic factors that cause agriculture to behave in a way. You know, I think history is full of enough uh, stories and uh accounts of agriculture done in perfectly ecologically sound ways but it's this modern globalized system of what um pushes agriculture to behave in certain ways and maybe you could describe how you conceptualize what is causing agricultural agriculture to as you know as he rightly points out is causing destruction is causing wildlife decline yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, I, I, you know, the first seventy odd pages of Monbiot's book. I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm completely with him. It, you know, it's a, it's a catastrophe, basically, uh, a large part of modern farming. But as you say, it, you know, far, you always have to look at farming in terms, you know, how does it fit into the wider political economy? And and Monbiot doesn't distinguish between different kinds of farming in the book. I mean, I think one thing that's going on here, which sort of relates to the discussion we were just having, is I, I think there's a kind of desire amongst eco-modernists to abstract humanity completely from being ecological protagonists. You know, if if you are an uh, if you're a farmer, if you are, or or a or a forager, a hunter gatherer, you're kind of an ecological protagonist along with all the other creatures and what you do does have an impact and i guess my argument is there's no way around that you know you you will be killing things you will be eating things and the you know the issue is that that's got kind of so far out of whack with modern humanity that we have to be careful how we do that for sure but i think there's a kind of desire within the eco-modernist movement to abstract our, to this kind of godlike abstraction where we're kind of floating above it all in our cities eating fermented food so that you know we and, and and then nature the wild things become you know purely objects of contemplation and you know i i think that's problematic for for all sorts of reasons but to answer your question i mean that the, the key thing for me really is fitting agriculture into 
um, the, the the sort of global trading network, or you know, or some might like to say global capitalism. And the logic of that is, to some extent, there's a kind of comparative advantage logic, so-called. So, you know, basically most places in the world produced a wide diversity of foodstuffs um, for people to eat locally. The way it works now is that every place is pushed to produce, you know, the one or the handful of commodities that it can produce most advantageously on on the global market. So, you know, one one big debate that Monbiot has been very involved in here in the UK is upland sheep farming in, you know, Wales and the the Scotland mountain areas of of England. And you know, there's debates about well maybe maybe there's you know too many sheep being produced um, in these places with a, a bad ecological impacts but part of the reason for that is is this kind of comparative advantage thing that you know pretty much the only agricultural commodity that those places can produce competitively in the you know in the wider global marketplace is sheep and so you know the why the market incentivizes them is to do that and not only to do that but to overproduce them and and actually i think you know the livestock issue is in some ways a bit of a sideshow what's really going on is um overproduction of arable grains um you know particularly wheat maize and soy and you know th that has kind of expanded you know they're basically very easily mechanizable processable um, they can be transported very easily, turned into a million different things with, with, you know, through manufacturing processes. And so the logic of the system is just to is is you know to to have sort of wafer thin margins and and then you know to to sort of keep producing more and more of this stuff to to, to make more and more money sort of on the basis of this you know very very sort of mechanized extensive arable farming model. And so, you know, we get this kind of ridiculous situation where a lot of these crops that, you know, really should be feeding people and then, you know, people only need so much food, then we need, we should stop eating and, and stop growing them in, you know, we shouldn't be growing them in, you know, we should only be growing them, you know, enough to feed ourselves adequately. But instead, what we're doing is, oh, well, you know, um, we need to crank this stuff out to make more money as, you know, in terms of the sort of drivers of the, of the global political economy. So let's feed them to livestock and we can add value there. So, you know, with a lot of the debate around livestock is around ruminants because of the methane emissions, which, you know, maybe we'll get onto that. But the real growth area in livestock is chicken and pig, you know, because they um, can be fed soy and grains. And, you know, that's that's what, you know, globally, that's that's been much the largest growth in livestock. Or even, you know, making biofuels out of maize and, you know, crazy stuff like that. So, you know, that it's that overproduction logic. And, and maybe just one other thing to mention there is bizarrely, unlike just about every other um, economic sector, the whole narrative in farming has been to get people out of farming, to get labor out of farming. And I guess historically, the reason for that has been that, you know, you can have sort of higher growth, higher economic growth, higher productivity um, if people are working in industry. And, and, you know, that certainly has been true historically. I think it's less true now, but, you know, the narrative is always, oh, great, there's less and less people working in farming. Isn't that a good thing? The, one of the main ways that that has manifested is by using agrochemicals, fertilizers, pesticides, insecticides, um, uh, herbicides, and so on. And, you know, those agrochemicals are doing the work on a kind of crude 
broad scale compared to the work of you know much more fine-grained local farming or gardening you know i mean we i think we need to be thinking more in terms of horticulture than agriculture and that is that is uh, you know those agrochemicals are absolutely implicated in so much of the um ecocide that, that's occurring in the world so i mean for sure live you know there's a whole bunch of issues about livestock that Monbiot and many others focus on. But I think, you know, what, what he's missing is that dynamic of overproduction, which is based on essentially ecocidal agrochemicals that replace human labor um, because it's not cost effective to uh, apply human labor. And, you know, I know that very well from trying to, you know, we've got a, a, a small market garden where we grow fruit and veg here, which we sell locally. And it's very, very difficult to make that work commercially because you know the, the the price of labor compared to the price of diesel or the price of agrochemicals so you know it's so all of that kind of economic context is so important uh, to understand all this but kind of goes missing in this you know um, farming is bad or livestock is bad sort of narrative absolutely and it it seems that people under the persuasion of eco-modernism are so they have the the tunnel vision of you know, Paul Kingsnorth, Paul Kingsnorth calls it the Tina. You know, there is no alternative. That ultimately we are on this economic model, and the progress of civilization is ultimately the ultimate path we should be on. And so we have to find these other places to put the blame, such as livestock or agriculture itself, which then leads kind of to the extremis of the solutions for eco-modernism, which would be what is being called precision fermentation. And I only want to bring this up because I do think it's kind of the the pinnacle example of the thinking. You know, if food is the problem, but we can't get around eating food, what we should do is we should make food exceptionally efficient and use as little bit of land and produce uh, something very reductive such as protein and what they believe could potentially be a very efficient land uh, saving method. So maybe you could kind of describe what this what this is and what they're trying to uh, advocate for. Right. Well, the the technology that Monbiot lands on in his book, and that you know most people are talking about, is so-called precision fermentation. So you know, there's well, people talk about fake meat, and there's various different technologies, but the one that you know is homed in on is um, is this you know so-called precision fermentation. So. Basically, the idea is that you take hydrogen oxidizing bacteria and you put them in a steel bioreactor and you feed them hydrogen and oxygen and a bunch of other things that they need to grow. So they, you know, they multiply and produce this kind of slurry of, of dead bacterial biomass. And, and it's probably worth making the point that, you know, when fermentation has this kind of nice kind of old time, you know, sort of bread and beer and stuff, but, you know, those older techniques use microorganisms to transform, you know, an agricultural product, whereas this is a, entirely a microbial product. And there are, I ha, you know, in my book, I, I don't really focus on the nutritional sorts of issues, but, you know, there are various nutritional concerns I would have with, with this stuff. But, but leaving that aside, the, the real issue with it, from my point of view, from a, from a sort of global systems point of view, is you've got to have you've got to have hydrogen and oxygen and the easiest way to to, to get that is by electrolyzing water 
well, you know, the, the easiest way to get it, almost all of the industrial hydrogen in the world today comes from fossil fuels. You know, it comes from natural gas, basically. But if we're presenting this as a, as a kind of renewable, clean technology, we can't do that. Therefore, you have to use clean electricity to electrolyze water into its constituent hydrogen and oxygen. But that is a fantastically energy intensive process. And it kind of, you know, and, and basically, I mean, you mentioned the thing about just use the sun <laughs> and that, you know, that's the issue. It's like if we're talking about, you know, a kind of energy efficient, clean, clean energy future, we have uh, solar solar radiation, you know, is it's kind of it comes to us for free, um, zero carbon. But the issue is it's diffuse, obviously. So historically, I mean, that's why humanity was spread out and rural historically, because you know we people need to spread out to to farm or to or to forage to to tap that solar input. You know, we've got into this modern situation of very concentrated urban populations, essentially because of the uh, you know because of fossil fuels, you know, that make it sort of easy to transport energy and to and to concentrate and so you know we're now desperately trying to sort of think well, how can we retain that you know whilst ditching the fossil fuels so a lot of this ultimately comes down to your view of energy futures if you think that there is going to be abundant clean energy in the future pv is the sort of main technology that's that's touted but it could be nuclear or you know whatever if you think that that's going to be abundant in the future then maybe this technique at least in technical terms, is is viable. But bear in mind, you know, we're doing a really bad job right now of decarbonizing the the global energy system. And there's all these industries, you know, steel making, cement making, you know, all these industries that are desperate for clean energy because they have no other options to decarbonize. Whereas farming, you know, it's the one industry where there is a, a abundant, uh, you know, zero cost, clean source of energy. And so what, you know, what this proposal is, is, well, forget, you know, forget that, you know, forget, forget the solar input. Let's use generated electricity, the thing that everyone else is like desperately fighting over to, to access and that we're not decarbonizing. You know, we're using more fossil fuels uh, than ever before. You know, let's let's, um, you know, let's add food into that mix and and, and start using this generated electricity to, to, to make food as well. So the whole thing is completely crazy as far as I can see in terms of, uh, you know, sort of energy futures or decarbonization, unless you think that we're on the cusp of this huge, um, you know, abundant clean energy revolution, which, you know, I'm not seeing any evidence for that. But that's, you know, that's. Um, I guess at the root of uh, of a lot of this is people who are, you know, boosting for various low carbon forms of of electricity. But yeah, if you do that, I mean, you know, there's other issues. I think there's a there's a big issue with contamination, which isn't discussed that much. And I haven't, you know, I haven't seen. Yeah, I, I you know, I'm, I'm I'm not a biotechnologist, as you know. But you know, one of one of the issues with some of these things is that. Um, yeah, you know, you need a very, very sort of clean environment in the bioreactor. And as I understand it, the way this has worked um, in biotech in the past has been to produce kind of low volume, high, high value stuff, you know, like the sort of fake blood that they sort of make for, for you know, vegan burgers. So, you know, the burger, the burger itself is an agricultural, you know, comes from soy or whatever. Um, but you can engineer some of these little additives 
and that's the way it's gone because it's you know it's hard to produce this stuff in bulk without contamination so you know and this is so at the moment this is all very much um experimental lab-based stuff and obviously we need to decarbonize the, the the global energy system really really urgently now you know and we are you know as as Monbiot and others rightly say you know we're in this extinction crisis um you know potentially six mass extinction so you know if if we're going to use this technology um you know it has to be done now but it's very much at a drawing board phase but i should yeah but to come back to your original point it is it's sort of correct that it's more efficient you know again i mean your your review was great marin in terms of you know the way we frame these things quantitatively and and, te- and and sort of technologically you know you can say well this is a more efficient process so technically yeah but pv can capture more more photons than a standing crop but the thing is the efficiency is irrelevant it's the cost which is <laughs> really significant you know um, but yeah, you know, if you put a load of PV panels in a field, they're sat there year round, they capture more photons than your soy crop, say. I mean, but, you know, there's other issues there. The, the soy crop is only there for part of the year. So you can have another crop, maybe, you know, a cover crop or, you know, there might be weeds or, you know, wild uh, crops that are that are getting some of those photons. So, you know, you sort of have to you have to be careful the way you frame that efficiency narrative, you know, just because it's more efficient doesn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily mean anything. And, you know, can we, can we get, you know, can we produce enough PV panels globally to produce all this food as, as well as doing everything else and, you know, all that that entails and then junking them after, you know, 20, 30 years and the energy costs of doing that compared to, you know, just, um, as, as, you know, the way that you would manage a, a, a crop. So, so yeah, in theory, possibly, maybe you can produce more protein per acre with this fermentation technique than you can with a traditional crop but you know there's a whole yeah you know, well I, I guess as i've just suggested there's a whole bunch of issues with that that i think mean that in practice you know it's it's a it's a real dead end yeah exactly and i think that you know one of the things that we think about a lot is this and you were describing it really beautifully just this promissory aspect of the technology is like we're just we're almost there once once we tap into this resource then we're going to figure it out and everything's going to be resolved um i'm wondering you know because one of the points that you make in the book that i i I really loved and it's a slightly it's slightly different than agriculture but i think that the point that you're making is really really interesting and i'm sure that you've seen this uh study that came out of finland that essentially says that we don't even currently have the resources on earth to be able to decarbonize our uh, our energy system, like fully replace fossil fuels uh, with renewable energy. We, we, we like just don't have enough lithium. We don't have enough copper. We, there's just not enough of these resources on Earth. And and so, and especially to do it in any kind of timely manner where- And to meet the current usage. Yeah, to, to meet current usage, to meet the goals that um, are, you know, were outlined in the Paris Agreement and all of these other agreements um, that have happened henceforth. One of the things that I think is so, 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 you know, just to just to reiterate. So it is very interesting to think that, yeah, somehow we're going to have the ability to also increase our electricity, uh, green electricity output by 11 percent and also decarbonize our economy at the exact same time. It's just it's very fantastical. 
But one of the things that I think that you mentioned in the book that I was really excited to see is that you also just kind of talked talk a bit about the generally the impracticalities and the difficulties of us decarbonizing our, our economic system as it stands now, like with the same rates of consumption, the same rates of energy usage. And you, part of this uh, advocation for an agrarian localism is also this like very emphatic recognition that that inherently means that we need to be using less energy, like that we're not going to be able to decarbonize, we're not in and have the same sort of energy life, high energy lifestyles that we have today. So I would just love for you to talk a bit about that, because one of the things that we've talked about a lot in our project is is just the sort of like like we, we just look around and it's, it's like, is it really going to decarbonize the world to, to like redo all of the energy infrastructure that we have? I think that you have to increase mining by 500 times in order for us to decarbonize using wind farms, uh, PV panels, all of these different things, electric vehicles. I would just love to hear your perspective on that, because... I think it's very it's very interesting right. and, and many many people still sort of talk about even people who are I think would agree with everything that we're saying are still really really sure that we're going to figure out this decarbonization problem. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean I, I guess the way I would get into that I, I think it's important that there's there's two sides to it. There's the kind of technical energy side and there's also the the kind of politics and and in fact the sort of global geopolitics which if if anything I think are more important. But on the techie side, I mean I'm not a techie energy person, but I think you know the study you mentioned the the, the Finland one Simon Michaud has um done a lot of this stuff and then people have criticized him and you know I've sort of kept my eye a little bit on that debate I mean I've seen studies suggesting that there's you know that there's the possibility of having 100% renewables by 2035 even or 2050 but I mean it's weird all these sort of academic studies now that they they seem to be less um you know that old kind of idea of academic uh, neutrality seems to be going out the window. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of boosterism for, you know, the the study that I drew on a lot in terms of precision fermentation is, you know, this is more efficient than photosynthesis, not, and you have to really go behind, you know, you have to really probe that, you know, behind the scenes of the paper to say, mm, well, actually, it's a little bit more complex than that. But yeah, I mean, I think there's. You know, one of the issues is the urgency of this. So, you know, people talk about nuclear power, for example, and uh, yeah, there's just levels and levels of complexity. But it, you know, it takes decades to 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 build a nuclear facility, and and there's a whole bunch of you know, it's very very expensive, um, all sorts of issues. Really, only a technology for you know for for wealthy countries. But it, you know, time is not on our side with this, and I think that's important to remember. So. You know, you see these kind of academic sort of back of an envelope projections saying, yeah, well, you know, probably maybe we could do this, you know, as a few issues here and there. Um, but, you know, like you say, there's all sorts of issues with the mining, grid infrastructures, seasonality. Um, and, and one of the points with it is that while we're talking about all this, there's no there's no diminution in um, fossil energy use. You know, what we're seeing is, yeah, you know, PV use has gone up massively, but it's adding to existing energy use. And that seems to be, again, it goes back, I think, to that overproduction dynamic that I was talking about in agriculture that applies to the economy in general. You know, the, the more energy we, we produce, there's any number of processes and industries where people are like, oh, great, well, we'll have, we'll have that then, you know. Yeah. But, you know, and, until we actually see 
and, and you know to some extent there's been decarbonization with switch from coal to natural gas but that's not a you know that's not a real kind of switch out of fossil fuels so uh, yeah there's a whole bunch of technical reasons to be suspicious of the possibility of the switch and each each of the the low carbon technologies you know has issues of its own and you know when you fit it into the bigger sort of um, energy economy you know that's you know that's not really a driver but there's also the geopolitical side of it which i talk about a bit in the book uh, you know that we have urbanized very concentrated populations very reliant on kind of non-resilient global supply chains and that was all fine you know when fossil fuels were abundant and could you know fund sort of global trade when countries were you know so-called modernizing and industrializing and you know high rates of economic growth but we're not really in that situation anymore you know we're in a situation where sort of industry is stalling for the same reasons that that agriculture has you know that it's it, it, you know most in most parts most parts of the world are kind of post-industrial so they're kind of service sector economies which rely a lot on human labor which is you know is it doesn't generate sort of economic growth and then and now you know, the sort of geopolitics start getting um um quite com conflictual around that so obviously we're looking at you know, Russia, Ukraine, US and China, the EU, you know, various global centers of power who are starting to sort of, you know, elbow each other uh, a, a little around this. So, and I mean, you know, and it's quite a scary prospect in my view, you know, if you, if you, you know, taking these sort of global mega cities with like 15 million upwards people totally reliant on these fossil energy supply chains to get you know, food, water, energy that makes those cities livable places and to get the wastes out of there. As these geopolitical conflicts hot up, as, you know, as we sort of hit various economic limits, you know, those are not looking like great places to be. So, you know, again, that's my argument for, you know, ruralization, you know, try and have a kind of, I mean, I think the way I present it is looking for low energy ruralism or agrarian localism by design so it doesn't happen by default because if it happens by default that could be pretty nasty you know so yeah so i you know that the only way this is the, the sort of eco-modernist vision is going to work is if yes we do make this very very rapid transition to a low carbon high energy urban um kind of society but you know i'm not really i'm seeing a lot of people talking that up i'm not really seeing evidence to suggest that that's you know what's actually happening or is going to happen and if it doesn't we are in deep trouble you know so that that's my argument for the ruralization basically yeah the the notion to rapidly urbanize everything is really terrifying to me because as somebody who currently lives in a very urban setting and my whole family does Living in the urban uh, setting leaves you no other option but to be a resource vacuum. You know, you don't it's there's it's there's no way not to. It's a very crippling situation because you to, to serve it's what cities are. And so it's a very scary idea to have everybody in that situation where they have no other choice. And, you know, I, I like that it's it's 
you know, we better do it willingly before we're forced to do it. One thing you hear people say often is that um, cities are more energetically efficient than the countryside. And I think, you know, this is something we need to push back uh, on. I mean, it's kind of true in a, you know, in a country like the UK or the US, you know, where people living in um, rural areas are living a high energy modern lifestyle that is less efficient you know it's less efficient to live that kind of lifestyle in the countryside than it is in the city partly because of the hollowing out of the countryside you know the the fact that the you know the the onset of the motor car means that um you know instead of having kind of local shops and services people are driving big distances so you know if if you do rebuild rural communities you can make them you know, less energy intensive. But, you know, the, the the reality is that cities, although on a sort of per capita basis, they can be a little bit more energetically efficient than people living a parallel sort of life in the countryside. You know, the reality is that they are huge energy and resource drains that require an enormous amount of kind of infrastructure servicing, which, you know, going back to our uh, what we were just talking about, if you assume that, that the energy for that is not going to be there, and we're talking, you know, worldwide, I mean, I think that there's real potential for global, you know, for widening global inequalities here where, you know, maybe Western Europe and the US may be quite advantaged in terms of continuing this lifestyle, but other places, um, you know, potentially could be really catastrophic, you know, but, uh, you know, I don't think we're going to escape it in, uh, you know, in, in the US or Western Europe. And obviously there's kind of ethical questions about that anyway, but yeah, so I think we need to get transcend this notion that cities are energetically efficient. It it all depends on uh, you know what what the what the framing of, of that is, and also the you know perhaps part of the answer to the the earlier point is the kind of energy the kind of embodied energy if you like of of infrastructure the the the, the kind of energy debt. I mean, I'm very conscious of that. You know, the land that I live on, we've turned it from basically just a big sweep of grass into a sort of multiply functioning farm and our day-to-day energy use is quite low carbon you know we've got pv panels we you know we have firewood we have a an e-trike that we deliver our veg with that we energize from the panels but if i think about all of the the, the sort of underlying fossil energy that's gone into setting that up you know no way could we have kind of funded the the sort of capital costs of setting that up just with the incoming the incident solar energy and i think that kind of applies globally as well i mean you know you get the sort of energy so-called energy cannibalism argument which again some people say no no you know pv can fund itself but it's not only funding itself it's funding the whole underlying infrastructure which you know and i'm not seeing a lot of evidence that that is going to fly long term but anyway sorry i Ye- yeah, well, no, that's great. And I think you remind me of what I was trying, the point I was trying to make is that we're in this, I think in the in 2023, we're in a really tricky situation where it's, if you start paying attention, it's pretty obvious we're not going to make this grand transition to renewable energy to keep this form of civilization up. On the other hand, it seems also just as likely that we're going to somehow uh, miraculously transition to some pre- uh, I don't know, Stone Age form of existence. And we have to find some some middle ground. And I think people underestimate how crucial and how impactful very quickly transforming to a local form of agriculture could be. And we could find that we we don't, I think 
people get stuck because we think when we say, well, this form of civilization is untenable, that what we're saying is we need to go back to the Stone Age or whatever it is. And I think it's actually we have no idea what the future looks like. It's it's you know, there's a lot of possibilities. And I think the way you describe local agrarianism kind of in what the future could be, it, it can mean a lot of things on a local context. And I think people don't understand. And again, this is where I think George is right on how impactful agriculture is and always has been. It's, I mean, that's the cornerstone of civilization itself. And I think we would be surprised to see how not just on an environmental level, the world changes, but on a societal um, health level, we would change if we transition to this more localized agrarian mindset. I think we would be very surprised. And so maybe that's a good segue onto, you know, in your book, you're saying I would identify politically as uh, local agrarianism. But what I'm really saying is we all become good keystone species. And I think that's a really beautiful way of describing it. And maybe you could describe what that means. Right. Uh, sure. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe just to reflect on a couple of the things you just said first, um, you know, that that's exactly right. And I think we, you know, we have to not be in this going back to the Stone Age mindset, although, I mean, you know, Monbiot t talks about that a lot. You know, we we can't have a Neolithic technology in, in, in the modern age. But hell, I mean, you know, people were still using knives and wheels, you know, which were used in the Neolithic. Nobody is saying we should get rid of them, you know, so it's, it's not about we need to sort of get out of this mindset of it's going to be exactly like the Neolithic, but you know what technologies? I mean, I mean, you know, the Neolithic invented arable agriculture, which we're still, you know. <laughs> um, so yeah, you know, it's it it it's worth just sort of bearing in mind that, as you say, there is this huge range of possibilities. So it's not if you get rid of your kind of six hundred horsepower combine harvester doesn't necessarily mean you need to use a digging stick. But you know, human labor is tremendously productive of of food so you know even in cities allotments community gardens all sorts of things you can do just to you know make yourself a food producer not not to produce all of the um all of the food you consume but people are astonished at sort of you know you know growing food is both difficult but also easy in a sense and you know and the key is human labor input so yeah the the keystone species thing uh, it sort of comes back to that point i was making about the the, the kind of god species idea of of um, eco-modernism that you know there are some species that uh, or most species probably are quite specialized to uh, you know to a to a very particular niche where you know they're very good at exploiting you know some particular resource but if you sort of take them out of the picture which i'm not saying is a good idea but it doesn't necessarily make a huge difference whereas other species are kind of ecosystem engineers they have a disproportionate impact on the wider ecosystem so here in the uk compared to the us we've got a very very impoverished wildlife you know we've kind of hunted and cut down and destroyed pretty much everything over the years. But, you know, people are reintroducing beavers that died out several hundred years ago. And that's a classic example of a keystone species where beavers are ecosystem engineers, dams, creating wetlands, brings other species in. So my argument in the book is, um, you know, humans also are keystone species, obviously, because we have a disproportionate impact, but not in a good way, it seems. You know? And that's, you know, that is part of the question. What are we doing with all our high energy stuff? You know, all the, all the goods that we're importing from all around the world, you know, all our 
communication technologists, which obviously are great because otherwise I couldn't be speaking to you guys. But you know, there's um, you know, we we kind of have a, a a a disproportionate sort of negative energy and, and and material impact. So the argument is, you know, what would it like for humans to be, you know, the way people are talking about beavers being reintroduced into the UK? Isn't it great? Keystone species, you know, it's re-engineering the environment and and creating niches for lots lots of other organisms so i mean i don't have all the answers or you know i'm not an ecologist but that is the way that i think we should be thinking about ourselves we should you know we are protagonists we are ecological protagonists and it's you know historically that's where you know a lot of interesting stuff about sort of indigenous systems or sort of fire management and so on in in different parts of the world or water management, you know, d- depends which part of the world you're talking about. But what people do do is create kind of mosaic landscapes. You know, I'm sort of oversimplifying, but in a lot of places you tend to get a sort of succession towards, you know, here in Southern England where I am, you, you get a succession towards big, tall, deciduous trees. Um, but you can, if, if you um, interfere with that succession and, even in the absence of people, there are all sorts of processes that do that interfering, you know, whether it's fire or wild herbivore grazing or whatever, that brings more light in, it brings, you know, it creates different niches for other organisms. And that's kind of what humans have done historically, creating more open mosaic habitats, uh, which is not intrinsically a bad thing to do do and there's kind of questions about what what you know it gets quite philosophical this you know what you know what what is what is the nature that we're trying to conserve or preserve or or protect and you know can we absent ourselves from that but that's the sort of idea that you know with uh low impact local uh land management that's you know inspired by low energy forms of, of the past that were you know, that were quite clever in terms of the way they, they you know, they use different aspects of, of the landscape and and were often quite benign towards, you know, various wild creatures. You know, it wasn't this, uh, again, there's this kind of modernist sort of quantitative kind of plow it all up, turn it into a huge field, make it mechanizable, make it sort of legible to capital or the calculus of numbers. But that's not what, you know, that's not what you do if you're trying to produce food for yourself, if you're trying to live in a landscape. So that's where the kind of keystone species thing comes in rather than the kind of logic of global agriculture. You know, something with in any one place, it, it raises, a, you know, a million difficult questions. But, you know, those are the questions we should be asking of ourselves, you know, not how can we um, pull this technology off the shelf that's going to, you know, feed the world and save us all kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot is is just getting clear on what is Homo sapiens, like what is the animal that we are. And recognizing that we are these landscape engineers, I think is a really important part of this because so much of the eco-modernist agenda is really, from my point of view, and this is a bit of an oversimplification, is about putting, cramming all these people in cities and then putting a fence around nature and then you get to go visit nature as a tourist, but you don't get to actually be Mm. a part of it. And so it's all about decoupling humans from nature. And I think that from our point of view, when I look around me and I see the alienation and the disconnection and the feeling of dislocation that so many young people, I think just people in general feel, but especially the younger generations feel, 
it's to, to me it seems that so much of it is related to this decoupling of nature that was already happened and so you know you make a, a good point in your book which is basically like if we're going to put all of these people in cities like what are they going to do like what are why are they going to work what is the what is the life that they're going to lead and so from our point mm-hmm. of view part of the reason why we've advocated like without using your terminology of uh, agrarian agrarian localism we've been advocating for the same thing but almost more out of a uh, sense of repairing this sort of spiritual disconnect of about what Mm. what we are as a as an animal and i think that the idea of being good Mm. keystone species is really resonant because you know so many of so much of what we've seen as we've been doing this project is people who are good keystone species being enclosed and um pushed out of that that life way to make room for this like this movement towards this modernist future, which is then causing the destruction. And so, you know, it's just, to me, it's just very, like, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it, but there's just this irony to it that, you know, as as we are trying, and now one of the things that we see is that, um, in the examples of like uh, protected areas, it's like it's so much of, so much of it is about pushing the people off the land, putting a fence around nature and, you know, turning the world into like safari parks, basically. And what, what you end up seeing mm-hmm. is a degradation of the landscape, because part of it is this idea that humans are almost like an accident, like we're, we're this like mistake that nature made and we just destroy everything. <laughs> when historically, that's actually just not the, that's just not true. That's just not how it is. Like we, mm-hmm. we co-evolved with this lands with these landscapes and these ecosystems. So maybe it could just sort of on the that train of thought can you describe the way that you perceive of this this notion that really animated me for to to write the piece that I wrote which is this just visceral feeling of like I don't want to live in the world that Mambio and the eco-modernists want me to live in I want to live in a agrarian localism can you describe that? Can you describe what you see, the conversations that you have, that that there is this desire to recouple ourselves with nature again, and that there's so many people who want to be a part of something like this, and yet there's this narrative that we're constantly battling with? Like, can you just sort of talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting there's that you know so many angles there i mean one thing is uh, as you say you know, you, you, that the concentrating people in cities thing is 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 problematic because i think the a lot of this modernist work uh, kind of policy research institutes in lovely cities like san francisco and imagine that everyone will be you know drifting around on a on a sort of nice college campus but the reality is yeah what are people going to do i mean i think actually this is a you know it it, it is a narrative of enclosure that you know we're, we're going to be looking at, at kind of slums and, and and misery and and sort of you know economic breakdown and the other side of it is what you know the implication is that if we leave nature alone then you know everything will be great out out in the in the wild places you know that's a huge assumption at several levels i mean my argument for agrarian localism or you know one of the key arguments is that if you are farming and producing food for yourself you are sort of part of these ecological cycles if you do something that has a negative impact on the capacity of your local environment to keep feeding you sustainably you notice and you're and you have a, a strong motivation to stop doing that and and to rethink it whereas if everyone's kind of concentrated in cities then 
you know who knows what's going on in the countryside you know there could be you know biofuel concessions mining companies you know the it's a it's a real kind of warrant to to not care about nature and you know and if you're living in a slum in a big city why yeah maybe rich people can go out on a nice safari but you probably can't so why the hell should you care do you know what i mean so there, there's so many kind of there's so many assumptions written into this that i think have the potential of, of, of going badly wrong. But I do think it's important, you know, we've we've sort of circled around this point about being an ecological protagonist. You know, it's it's you know, it's nice to go on a safari or a nature walk and just, you know, admire nature from a from distance as it were. But the key thing is when you're actually the protagonist, you know, having to figure out how you how to make your living within it. And as you say, many, many people are drawn to that. And I think that's absolutely what we, you know, what has to be um, supported and amplified. And yeah, remembering that we're animals, not disembodied traffickers in electrons or, or, or whatever. And, you know, and the, the narrative of enclosure, you know, the, the first thing we should do is people who have historically lived low impact agrarian lifeways is to protect them. And I mean, a, a real worry, again, kind of a historical irony in Monbiot's trajectory. You know, one of his early books, he wrote a book called No Man's Land, where which was about pastoralists in East Africa. And he made the point that you know, there's a sort of colonial narrative that they were overgrazing and, and and causing all sorts of ecological destruction, but actually they weren't. And you know, he argued that they that their practices actually preserved, you know, this keystone species idea preserved a kind of mixed mosaic habitat that was beneficial for for wildlife. And the the irony was that they were being cleared out of the way to create game reserves for tourists to visit that was you know that, that um, so he was arguing that back then but it's almost like he's he's dropped that now and and is arguing not his argument is sort of based on um um on on sort of livestock impacts um and particularly you know that this whole methane argument about ruminants but you know there's a real fear that again you know your stuff is so great on quantification it's going it's so easy for a government to say, you know, to to take a, a group of poor poor pastoralists, you know, they tend to be people that don't own their own land. They they've got herds that are, you know, that are grazing of complex kind of social arrangements, kind of marginal land. They're politically powerless, but they are feeding themselves and, you know, potentially doing good ecological work, it's going to be so easy for people to say, oh, actually, when you look at the methane emissions of your cattle, it turns out that you're actually, um, you're on the wrong side of history. Sorry, guys, you, you have to move out. I mean, and there there are so many reasons why, I mean, like you said, you had a visceral reaction to, I mean, I have a visceral reaction to this is like preserve pastoral, and that, and that can, you know, particularly, you know, in low income countries, traditional pastoralists, but also in a country like the UK here, you know, traditional upland um, stock farmers, it's kind of the same argument, really, where they're being uh, demonised for, you know, carbon emissions or deforestation. Uh, you know, not that every aspect of that farming is necessarily um, beyond reproach, but, you know, we actually need to preserve farmers in place and and sort of allow farmers to to, to, to find their own solutions locally rather than having these sort of top-down narratives. But yeah, as you say, people, 
you know, I think increasingly there's a there's. Uh, I mean, I've noticed in the twenty odd years I've been involved in agriculture, more and more young, sort of well educated people. You know, used to be farming. Like, who would want to be a farmer? Crazy idea. You know? But more and more people, you know, young educated people. Not that you have to be educated particularly to get. You know, it's a different type of education. But you know, more and more people are getting drawn into it because for a whole bunch of reasons. But you know, essentially people are drawn to being protagonists within the natural world so the key thing i think is to make that possible and again in some ways maybe this part of the eco-modernist narrative is trying to kick over the tracks here because that ultimately is an argument about access to land you know who owns the land and you know land tends to concentrate in the hands of the few so if we're talking about agrarian localism we're talking about widespread access to land well you know what what does that involve you know but that i think ultimately is where this discussion has to go and not oh you know we've got this kind of uh, new high energy corporate technique that's going to feed everybody so yeah I, I don't know if that answers your question at all there's you know there's a lot of different dimensions to that but absolutely being you know making ourselves protagonists in 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 a in an ecology and and, and trying to be a a good keystone species or a good steward of that ecology um while but also feeding ourselves is really important and you know you can do that in urban settings to some degree like I, you know i just think if if people do anything that starts to you know produce some food or some fiber for themselves and make themselves you know part of those cycles that's that's better than doing nothing you know yeah absolutely and you you did a great job answering my very long-winded and confusing questions so <laughs> so i i have to give it to you for that long-winded answer <laughs> <laughs> um but as you were talking, I was thinking of this sort of question that I, I did notice that you didn't use the term regenerative in your book. And I would just be curious if, if there's like a deliberate reason for that, that you've chosen this more specific uh, agrarian localism. Like we've we've seen a lot of challenges uh, arising within the regenerative movement of just like how it's very easily kind of co-opted. And I don't know if that's just like a definitional thing. Like it's just it's just vague enough that anybody can kind of make do make whatever they're doing into regenerative. Um, but I, I'm just curious, like, is that is that is there a reason maybe that you aren't using that word? interesting question i mean i i didn't devote a huge amount of thought to it so there, there wasn't a very deliberate attempt to um avoid it I, I get maybe there was a slight one in as much as you know there's this whole very very uh, complex set of issues about kind of soil carbon sequestration and the the carbon and the methane cycle so on the one hand you sort of get the vegan argument that you know cows are terrible we're going to have a livable planet we've got to get rid of all the ruminants and then you've at the other extreme you've got uh, you know a kind of extreme regen uh, grazing argument that actually we need more cows because um, then they cycle carbon and sequester it in the soil and i'm i'm a little bit skeptical about the kind of extreme um, regen carbon sequestration argument um i mean I, I touch on it in the book i don't really go into it in a huge amount of detail because it's this kind of rabbit hole of competing arguments about carbon that you you kind of don't get out of it alive often and it seems to be that you know fundamentally the most important thing is to cut fossil fuels or you know all of these um arguments about carbon sequestration and methane and uh, and so on i mean you know fossil fuels are the major source of methane anyway uh, uh, you know quite apart from the carbon dioxide 
So I kind of didn't want to signal maybe that I was strongly pro-regen. I mean, I'm sympathetic to that kind of regen grazing argument. And I, you know, I need to, I sort of need to learn more about it, but also maybe not. I mean, I think, you know, in place, you know, like in the Western USA, it's a, it's really important because there's a lot of kind of sort of arid rangeland. So, you know, that it, it, it's not such an important argument, you know, where I am right here but other than that i i didn't really do it that deliberately except maybe subconsciously as you say all of these things tend to get appropriated and i think you know the key thing i think people tend to often focus on the practice and not the social and economic context and that's where the localism is important i mean i was i i was did this presentation with vandana shiva a month or two ago and somebody sort of put their hand up and said, what about insects? And it's like, you know, insects, I think, probably do have their place within agriculture. But the point is not that our insects are the answer. It's like, where do insects fit into the agro ecosystem? And, and how would you be farming them? You know, how would they fit into the, the, the sort of local food system? So I do think it's important to signal the agrarian and the local aspect so that it's not just a kind of technique, uh, you know, that's a, 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 which sort of, you know, you kind of get that in the alternative economics world or the alternative farming world. It's almost like eco-modernism with a, with a sort of green hat on. It's like, you know, you just need to do this regen technique and then, you know, everything will be fine. And for sure, you know, there's, you know, we can talk about all the techniques and, and the best things to do, best practice and so on. But it's kind of not, I, I think if we focus it on the technique, on, then we're sort of missing a larger point. So maybe there was an, an element of that. But but as you say, also the way that, you know, it's it's becoming this, it's being appropriated by corporate players and, you know, all of these kind of carbon offset market things that I think are, again, another sort of, you know, human sort of attempt to sale of indulgences that's not really going to go anywhere good, you know. Um, so, yeah, I kind of want to distinguish myself from that. Yeah, well, I think you're right. And this is something we've come to a lot recently is that it's very easy to turn something with good intentions like Regen Ag as a way of fixing and upkeeping kind of modern civilization to say like actually everything's right on track it's just that we were kind of being mean to the soil so if we could be a little bit nicer to the soil we'll actually be good <laughs> whether that's organic whether that's vegan whether that's regenerative whatever it is and for me it's like yeah. well obviously our agriculture should regenerate soils that'd be great but it should almost be more of a byproduct it should it it's because of the way we've structured ourselves as a species it's just that's that's the only way to do it was be regenerative you know and i think what I think about yeah. when we talk about localism is that, you know, we have no other choice but to take care of soils because there's nobody who's going to drop off the fertilizer. Like you have to you have to do things in a way because you don't have the extra resources to, to fuck it up. You have to take care of the place. And I think that's far yeah. more important because it you it, it's a lot more responsibility on everybody. You know, I think it's really easy to go yeah. to the grocery store and buy a regenerative label. Um, that's very easy yeah. and doesn't really require a whole lot and doesn't actually do much. And I, we, yeah, we've, absolutely. you know, you're just regenerating the soil somewhere, <laughs> somewhere. But yeah. Like... Not even where you live. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, yeah, I think that's an important point. You know, I think somewhere in, in the book, I, I kind of say nobody is coming to save you. And, you know, whether that's true or not, I think it's quite a good thing to have in your mind. Like imagine if you, um, you know, if there wasn't this technique or there wasn't this farmer, in some distant part of the world who was who was doing this thing how you know what would your local foodscape
landscape look like then and you know probably for a lot of people it would look quite terrifying but that's you know that's that's a good place to to, to start but yeah absolutely it's um yeah you know so often these things you know you get a good idea and then it kind of gets monetized or incentivized within the existing system which kind of pushes you in all the wrong directions i think and and you know it's so important always to be thinking of a kind of multifactorial set of problems that we that we have to address that we're not going to address using you know the the familiar sort of global trading economic instruments you know as i was saying earlier i do think ultimately these are kind of cultural and spiritual as well as practical problems that we have to solve so so asking those kind of questions nobody's coming to save us you know what can i do here you know what kind of uh, sort of politics or economics does it fit in those are all better questions i think than is this you know does this tick the the regen box even if you know we do need to have these debates about you know different agricultural techniques and what their impacts are but it's very easy to get sold or you know the, the, i mean it's uh, the whole history of agriculture is is, is full of that, that kind of snake oil, oil salesman sort of thing you know like with this great new technique you know this is how we're going to solve the problem and and ultimately that's how the whole kind of fertilizer industry and the whole agrochemical industry you know has 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 been built on the back of that um you know glenn davis stones but the agricultural dilemma is a great book, uh, and that's this is my real fear. You know, going back to the earlier part of the discussion about energy. You know, if you look at um, so-called precision fermentation in its own terms, I you know I, I think it's a, a non-starter energetically. But if it connects with larger governmental or sort of a larger political agenda around you know, nature conservation or feeding cities or whatever then governments have got an enormous power to sort of incentivize and push things in particular directions so you know i basically what i want to do is is sort of say like to try and warn people not not to get suckered by that and to to as you were just saying to actually tr try and take charge a bit more locally in whatever way that might be whether it's you know as a grower or in a more political activist kind of way you know yeah i feel like in Genesis, George Mambio really tries to sort of make this case that we're going to do precision fermentation. It's going to be to totally democratized and it's going to be local and it's going to be all of these things, which is just impossible with how energy intensive it is for that to not be centralized and uh, controlled by corporations. And so, you know, and I think one of the things that one of the points that you make in both of your books is that this idea of autonomy of actually just giving people access to providing for themselves and having the land to be able to and and the, the small farm future requires that we're able to really decide and have some self-determination and food sovereignty and one of the questions that i think that brings up that i think is important for us to address and i think that you do a really good job of describing this is the the way that we've been incorrectly thinking about the tragedy of the commons um, and that really the what the po the problem is is that we're not part of the commons anymore, and that's why we feel that we can destroy it. I, I wonder, could you talk? Could you tell us your the way that you articulate that? I could, um, I'm not sure which bit you're referring to. I can I, I have quite a complicated relationship with commons, <laughs> <laughs> but I can uh, I can. But yeah, I mean, you know, the tragedy of the commons idea is, you know, is the the the, the sort of Hardin idea is problematic, obviously, because people do tend to generate grassroots agreements that 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 limit use. I mean, I 
I guess I've written critically about the way that, you know, sometimes people, I think, articulate that quite naively to kind of say, oh, well, we should all get together, you know, in a in a big sort of commune locally and all all sort of work together growing stuff. And that, you know, that that doesn't tend to work all that well. If you look at kind of a agricultural commons historically, they tend to be focused around extensive resources that are at a kind of whole landscape level so it will be you know something like managing irrigation or fire risk or whatever and so uh, you know and and you know they're often the ones that work are very cleverly and carefully designed to you know they're not based on a on a kind of optimistic view of human nature you know they're kind of based on being sure that people are incentivized to be a good person, be a good citizen in the right way. And, 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 you know, likewise with property, I, if we're talking about small, um, small scale local farming, then we're talking about a lot of household based farming, but, you know, property is a social relationship. You know, it's about, uh, it's about how do we as a wider community give appropriation rights to particular sorts of sorts of groups so it's always it's always set within a common collective framework but it, it doesn't have to be everyone sort of working in common mm -hmm. but i'm not sure if that was the thing that i'd written about that you were referring to well that no that that helps clarify it a bit because you know you had it was something that was like the just talking about how the tragedy of the commons this idea that you know we're just naturally going to exploit land and that you know you might as well exploit mm -hmm. it first is kind of like that that sort of uh i guess it, like the ayn rand kind of selfish gene sort of sort of yeah. perspective about human nature but you know you had you had said that there's there are these like concept uh, complex social organizations that happen around common lands that tend yeah. to tend towards working with the land working with one another to make sure that there's resilience in the land but of course i think it's also important what what you're saying that that there are limits to that too and that there's that we have to be considerate of how how that's going to actually manifest in reality and that we can't just right. assume i think there's a lot of um like eco villages and stuff that sort of go into it with this expectation that egalitarianism is isn't something that you have to like work towards and and it is it's yeah you know, yeah there's a lot of work you know. yeah Oh, actually, I'm remembering the bit where I did talk. I, I used the example of whaling, um, yeah. I think, which, you know, I, I think is quite interesting. Or, or you know, fisheries in general, uh, although obviously whales aren't fish, but I think people call whaling, uh, you know, fishing grounds. But anyway, you sort of get the situation where, I mean, you do get a classic tragedy of the commons with open ocean whaling or fishing precisely because well partly because of the technology but um which is kind of an interesting one in there's a whole kind of eco-modernist myth around whaling that i think is kind of interesting but but it's partly because you know nobody lives in the open ocean so it is an absolute you know free for all and that is when you tend to get overfishing you get a classic tragedy of the commons whereas if you look at an inshore fishery you know, people are living there, uh, making a, making their living from fishing, and they tend to, um, you know, that, that, and that's absolutely where a commons comes in because you can't, you know, you can't sort of bound off. Well, usually you can't bound off water in the way that you can land, so you have to sort of have agreements about, you know, who's allowed to fish, where, when, and so on. And people, you know, people are great at, at coming up with those things given the right 
um, sort of social and, and, and economic parameters, whereas if it's just a big trawler or a big whale ship out, out in the open ocean competing with everyone else just to run down the resource, you know, that's um, that's what happens. But it is, I mean, the, the, the other thing you mentioned that interests me is, is Monbiot's sort of complacency around uh, corporate concentration because you know the, the he sort of has this idea that these uh, fermentation plants are going to be they're going to be like a sort of local bakery you know a sort of nice local sort of place where you can go and buy your buy your 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 gloop um <laughs> but um <laughs> But the reality, you know, that's not the reality of industrialization. You know, the the interesting thing is that land, although it it has been subject to a great deal of corporate concentration, for for a whole bunch of interesting reasons, not as much as in manufacturing industry. So you will find people's backyards, allotments, small farms, people growing stuff all all around the place. Whereas you know, you don't find a, a sort of local workshop turning out computers or cars you know i mean i think i remember reading i think this is right that about 1900 in france there were like 300 different uh, makes of car which were all sort of basically kind of bespoke things made in by local garages you know there's probably not even 300 car manufacturers worldwide now you yeah. know there's a there's a, you know there's a huge tendency towards economies of scale in industrialized processes in a way that there isn't so much i mean there's there still is but you know but there are kind of defenses against that in terms of people having access to to land particularly rural land and that, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, that I think is so important to defend because, you know, once that's gone, it really is a kind of um, corporate free-for-all. Yeah. Right. And that makes me think, too, about, you know, when you think about a tragedy of the commons sort of situation, the it's the incentives are kind of what propels that. Whereas, like, you know, people maybe wouldn't necessarily have the incentive to go whaling or to do uh, to, to have these bottom trawling ships fishing, like overfishing the oceans if there wasn't like a capitalist economic incentive for it. Similarly to, you know, if you look yeah. at like a feudal system, even where the incentive is that you're going to be taxed by your feudal lord. And so you have to be producing as much as possible. And so I think it kind of it all sort of goes back to this idea of overproduction, of surplus, of commodification that you know, yeah. like, and for me, I think that's where it bring it comes into this quantitative thing, where it's like we we started we we one of the very first things that we ever did was start counting. Uh, as far as writing goes, to start writing down how much wheat w had been produced and how much we were going to be taxing people and how much things cost. And so it's like this economic, these economic incentives, I think, are really, really severely minimized when you have this sort of agrarian localism where I think it's more possible for trade systems to reemerge, like bartering, like, oh, you have a lot of chickens, like we'll trade eggs and I'll, I'll give you tomatoes. Like these, these uh, localized economies just inherently to me seem so much more resilient. And so that's why it was so interesting to me in uh, uh, Regenesis when George Monbiot was talking about how unsustainable his grandmother's diet, her completely localized like <laughs> villager diet is so unsustainable compared to his completely globalized diet. I just thought that that was the most like a insane abstraction. I it it and it's confusing to me how someone so smart can't see that. <laughs> I, I don't know if I have a question r r related to that, but I just thought... Yeah, of... no, I liked, I liked, yeah, I liked that part of your review. It's funny because I, I wrote a little review of the book online before then going on to write my book. And I, I 
was struck by that grandmother example as well. I didn't really talk about it um, in the book other than the the whaling example that kind of found its way in there. But yeah, no, I really liked your analysis of that. But again, you know, one of the odd things about that was he he described his um, childhood holidays with his grandmother with this real sense of love and learning from her about nature, you know, how to find mushrooms, how to fish. But then, as you say, then it's all then it's kind of all swept aside in this kind of scornful thing about her terrible diet. And, you know, my one of my fears, I mean, we touched on this earlier, but, you know, my fear is that, you know, in a world of, of sort of 90 percent urban living and everyone eating gloop from um, from these uh, factories, you know, there aren't going to be women teaching their their their, their, their grandchildren that there, there isn't going to be that kind of knowledge of nature. And if you don't have that, then, um, you know, a lot of things start falling apart, potentially, you know. Uh, and But also, you're quite right that the. the, the I mean, I think George has got very driven now by this vegan sort of narrative, which, you know, there's a lot of good reasons to be vegan, certainly in the context of the global um, meat industry. But, yeah, you're certainly right that the, the, the sort of diet of a kind of cosmopolitan, global, plant-based, but global food system diet is not necessarily or is certainly not more sustainable than um you know than 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 a diet based on local mixed farming from you know from from bygone times so yeah it was a curious curious section of the book uh, for all sorts of reasons there yeah well i don't want to take up too much more of your time we're almost on two hours now and this is more of just like <laughs> a i think something that we've been wondering because when it comes to to George Mambio, and I think we've seen it happen in a lot of people, there's a lot of people, I think, specifically in the eco-modernist movement who were had a weird shift and a weird kind of uh, path change. And whether it's somebody like Michael Schellenberger or George Mambio, a lot of people we've known who have been following somebody like George Mambio for many years are very confused by this really strange almost naive change into these ideas. I mean, what do you think that is? And I, and I don't want to just pinpoint on George Mambio. I see it happen to a lot of people. Where does yeah. that come from? I mean, I think, you know, I wrote a blog post a year or two back called, I called it Last Chance Saloon Eco-Modernism. And I think there's an element of that. Um, I, I mean, I think, it, I think partly there is a sort of the anti-livestock, anti-meat agenda that is a good argument when you push it to a certain degree but when you start you know when it starts driving your whole take on agriculture then you start looking for sort of you know <laughs> for anything else but i think I, I, I think the main thing is just this feeling that we are even you know we're out we're, we're out of the last chance saloon you know the clock is past midnight climate change is is gonna just kind of just scramble our world so thoroughly that it leaves people just grasping for whatever straw they can and i guess if you you know i mean somebody like george has been writing for years and saying look climate change hello everybody climate change and you know nobody nobody has been listening and there's a feeling that well you know here we are we're all we're so urbanized we're so high tech the only way that we're gonna save our asses is, is by kind of sticking with plan a but trying to do it you know in a um I mean, the curious thing is that you could make that argument without shooting down on alternatives. So, you know, he's 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 been very very kind of snarky and very very you know this whole kind of you know so-called neo-peasant bullshit sort of stuff. He says. I mean, 
you know, I do understand, I, you know, we've talked to, at the beginning of this uh, of this conversation about, you know, the pervasiveness of the, the idea of progress. And, and you know, it, I, it's not like I've got some great answer. You know, I talk about that in the book, solutionism, one of the problems is saying, yeah, I've got this great answer. I don't have a great answer as to how we are going to ruralize and, you know, everyone's going to happily be a homesteader. I mean, it, you know, whichever way you look at where the, the, the world is headed, we've, you know, we face some really tough problems, but I don't think it helps to kind of just grab onto a, 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 a sort of magic, you know, magic potion to, to, you know, I understand the fear and the despair, but, you know, that, that doesn't justify um, kind of magic solutionism. So, you know, I think it's better to keep talking about the politics, the culture, and, you know, the, the, the more grounded possibilities for, for, for grassroots renewal, which is sort of what I try and do. But I think that's where it comes from. But again, I do have a, there is a question as to the extent to which this livestock narrative is starting to dominate at the expense of talking about fossil fuels. And, you know, point I make in the book is that the, the availability of cheap fossil fuels is what makes the, you know, the disasters of the livestock industry possible. If you didn't have the fossil fuels, you'd have to be thinking in terms of, well, you know, I've got so much land, I, you know, I need to rotate crops, I need to fit livestock into that, you know, I need to produce fertility on the land. So it's inherently more limiting than, you know, growing a load of cheap arable crops and pouring it down the throats of livestock. So, you know, whichever way you look at it, fossil fuels, I think, are the fundamental question. And there's a danger of losing sight of that, even as you know, this narrative is driven by, you know, quite rightly by by a fear of the, the consequences of climate change. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I just want to say thank you for for the books that you've written and the work that you're doing, because I think it's really important. And I think it's also important because there when I think about the sort of sort of eco modernist point of view, um, to me, I, it feels like there's a lot of denialism. There's a lot of this idea that we just have to find this one solution in order for us to basically continue the status quo, and I think part of that is is about a, is about a fear of what the what a collapse could feel like, what it could feel like to not have food yeah. on the shelves, what it could feel like to, you know, because when I think about it, it's like it's it's as you were saying, we're either going to voluntarily go towards this more ruralized lifestyle, or it's going to happen involuntarily, and the way that I see it, the involuntary process is likely very violent, likely a lot of hunger, a lot of people who are, you know, born and bred in cities and are very domesticated into this sort of civilized life and don't know how to provide for themselves at all. And so, you know, the result of that to me is like a lot of violence of people fighting over what few resources are available. And, you know, I've, I've been reading a lot recently about this, the sort of potential for a sort of a dark age. Um, but, but that that's not necessarily that doesn't have to be a bad thing, because we can be aware of it, we can be aware that it may be coming, and prepare for it now. And mm remember lessons from the times from previous dark ages remember how to live on the land and you, you write in your book also that you know there, there's a sort of optimism to that there's an optimism for, at least for me and this is something that i've had a hard time like explaining to people like my parents but i have a lot of optimism about the future <laughs> because i don't believe that this way of life can continue and that actually gives me a lot of yeah. agency because i'm no longer sort of at the whims of this sort of cultural like magnetism this this movement towards something it's like i i'm able to really fully embody the fact that i'm i can 
have some sovereignty over the direction of my life. Mm. And so I think being alive during a civilizational transition or however however we want to articulate it is really interesting. And it's it actually gives you a lot of autonomy. And so I I really appreciate your work for um, for for just like for for my resonance with it but also just for sort of validating that point of view i think as young people we kind of right. it's easy for us to be sort of perceived as melodramatic or like doomer or something and it's like no i actually feel like really good about <laughs> about <laughs> i feel good yeah, about things yeah. resist uh, <laughs> yeah yeah resist resist the doomer tag and, and resist the sort of notion that you know that with you know, with the kind of arguments for agrarian localism, everyone's going to starve, whereas, you know, we'll all be fine with, um, you know, these high-tech things. But also the um, the um, the Dark Ages point always interests me because I think, you know, the way we tend to... You know, the, the, the people who wrote about Dark Ages were the kind of elites, you know. It was like, um, you know, Augustine talking about the collapse of the Roman Empire, mm. sort of, oh, God, this is terrible, you know, but the, you know, basically from the point of view of ordinary people, Dark Ages were, I mean, not always, because like you say, there's violence and chaos and stuff, but, you know, it could be quite liberating for a lot of people because they weren't being screwed, um, you know, the kind of, the, the sort of punitive taxation that ordinary peasants were paying to centralised states. So, you know, I think the experience of decline of civilization or decline of political centers historically from ordinary people has often been quite a positive one. And and I'm sure that what will happen in the future is that the renewal, you know, is going to come, you know, it's not going to come from New York City or London or Washington, D.C. You know, it's going to come from outside of, um, you know, the the historic centers of contemporary civilization. But, you know, having said that, the difficulty that we globally face today is that those previous dark ages were still the majority of people were local cultivators. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and the, and the state was, um, you know, something that maybe gave them some things, but also took things from them. And, and you know, sort of day to day life was as it was, whereas, you know, that's not the, the, the life that most people are living today. You know, we are having to sort of reinvent ourselves, I think, in a much more fundamental way. And that is a sobering thought. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, I think the, well, you know, the, 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 the Doomer optimists, I've done some podcasts with them. I quite like that, con- the, 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 you know, the, the conjunction of doom and optimism, because I think we need, um, you know, we need, we need both. We need to be sort of realistic and scared about where we're at, but as a way to, to warrant taking good actions and, and sort of rethinking where we're at quite fundamentally. So, and, and it's great, you know, I really appreciate you, you guys work as well in, in terms of moving that forwards. Well, well thank, thank you. you. I think Doomer Optimism may have to be the name of the podcast. No, they are, there is one. There's there's one called Doomer Optimism. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank but, you. Oh, sorry. oh, I just wanted to share this like one quote, like, because I think that the what we're talking about is so important and i think my one of my problems with the way that things are the direction that things are moving is that it's 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 all based on the familiar and it's all based on avoiding the sort of dreadful feelings that arise when you actually really try to assess our situation as accurately as you can and there's this great quote from kierkegaard and it's he who is educated by dread is educated by possibility and i just think that that's a very succinct way of putting it which is like you know in order for us to truly be optimistic about the future we have to face the the reality and so that's just what i think but yeah (laughs) beautiful well, thank you, Chris. Uh, we appreciate your time. Where can, where, and when can people get your book? And where can they find you? 
So um, both my books are published by Chelsea Green, which is a, they were sort of published in the UK, but they're both available in the US um, through all the usual, preferably your independent local bookstore, you know, speak up for localism and all, um, but you know, you can get it um, wherever books are sold and it's available in the, the both of them are available. Uh, oh, sorry, the, both of them are available in paperback or ebook versions and the, the newer one saying no to a farm free future is also available as an audio book. If you want to interact with me individually, um, there's my website, chrismage.com, and I've been running a blog for about 10 years now. Um, and um, uh, it's quite a lively, I mean, I've, you know, I've written about all this stuff at, at great length on, on the blog um, and quite a lively group of people, mostly US-based actually, but um, from other parts of the world as well, um, debating on the blog. I'm not always great at answering emails because I've, I've started to get um, um, quite a few of them, but you can contact me via the um, um, via that website and I'll, um, I'll, I'll do my best to answer. But, you know, do feel free to pitch in with the blog discussion. Um, so yeah, lots of ways to get my get my content. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, great. Thank Wonderful. you so much. We'll, we'll put all of those links in the show notes and everything and we'll, we'll send people your right. way. So thank you. This thank has you. been right. really, really great. awesome. Okay. Have a good rest of your evening. Right. Great. No, enjoy it. Yeah. Enjoy talking uh, with you. So yeah, thanks very much.
it ever worth it? Was there all that much to gain? Well, we knew we'd miss the boat and we'd already missed the plane. We didn't read the invite, we just danced it all awake. All our favorites were playing so we could shake, 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 shake. Tiny curtains open and we heard the tiny clap of little hands. A tiny man would tell a little joke and get a tiny laugh from all the folks sitting, drifting around on bubbles and it was us to carry them when we finally got it figured out that we had truly missed the boat.